Science. This cycle of closeness and estrangement, what instigates it, triggers it? First thing that comes to your mind. Sacramento. Governor Gray Davis. Fear. That's the main motivator for everything. That and guilt are the two emotions that keep a society humming. It's the wear and tear of the job. The diapers, the tantrums, the homework, the state capitals. Suddenly all you're aware of is that it's virtually impossible to French kiss a person who takes the new roll of toilet paper and leaves it resting on top of the empty cardboard roll. God forbid he takes the two seconds to actually replace it. Does he not see it? Does he not see it? <laughs> How does the person who is the essence of your dreams turn into that? <laughs> My gosh. And, and by the way, did you just get like a little wigged out this morning at seeing Bruce Willis with hair? You know, I want to do something with you here today. You know, in my time in doing ministry, I have got to meet a ton of couples, and I've got to do a ton of weddings, which meant also that I've got to go to, well, that's falling, a ton of free wedding receptions. Good side perk of the job, all right? And uh, they have this thing at these wedding receptions, maybe you've seen them yourself, maybe you've been to them, where they have this dance. And the way the dance works is that it's made up of married couples, and then somehow throughout the course of the dance, the DJ starts shouting out ages. And the ages aren't how old you are, but the years that he's shouting out is how many years people have been married. And what happens as his, his numbers increase, those who have not yet hit that benchmark need to exit the dance floor so that what you have remaining is the oldest married couple on the floor. Have you seen this? All right, I'd like to do something today. I'd, I'd like to kind of have like our own version of this right here, but I am not going to sing, okay? And what I'd like you to do is if you are married here today, I would like you to stand up. My gosh, there's a lot of you and the single people looking for women are just weeping right now, you know? It just... <laughs> All right, what I'm going to start doing is calling off years. Now, as I'm saying the years, what I want you to do is sit down if you have not yet hit that benchmark. Are you with me? One year. Two years. Five years. <laughs> Someone in trouble tonight? <laughs> Seven years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. Some of you are really old. <laughs> Where am I at 152 now or something? What was it, 30 years? 30 years. 35 years. <laughs> 40 years. 41, 42, 43, 44, 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> 46, 47, how many years, Marion? All right.
Tina and I have been married 16 years now. I will verify later to make sure, but it sounds good. Um, it's been really cool for me because uh, there's this myth out there that marriage is best in the honeymoon years and it all goes to pot from there. But you know, I, I've had the opportunity in this job to meet some married couples who have been married 30, 40, 50, even 60 plus years. And every now and then you come across this couple. Have you met them? This couple that they've been married 58 years or something like that, and yet they seem like they are more into each other than they were on their wedding day. You know the couples I'm talking about? They're rare. They are not easy to find, but they are out there. Maybe it's grandparents. Maybe it's someone here. Maybe it's someone you know. But those couples that when you just look at them, you see something about them and you like, these people are more in love, more into each other, more doing life together now than I swear they were when they stood at an altar saying, I do. You know, it's like the grandparents who kiss and, and show public affection and are so into each other. And, 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 like, and, and like on the, the outside, you kind of go, ew. But, <laughs> but inside, you're going, I want that. I want that. And guys, that's what we're here to talk about today. Your soulmate. That person that hopefully 58 years from now that when you look at them and they look at you, there is something there that is deeper and richer and more amazing than those amazing dating years or the time that you stood at an altar and said, I do. We're going to be talking about marriage today in these next couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, is, is it not right? There, there's no singularly more complicated yet amazing relationship than this thing called marriage. And yet at the same time, there's nothing more painful and hard and gut-wrenching than this thing called marriage. There's a fairy tale out there that a lot of people have that you just find the perfect man or the perfect woman and you come together and you have the perfect marriage and the perfect life and you live happily ever after. You know, I heard a, a quote, an anonymous quote, and it says this. The only thing perfect about marriage is the airbrushed wedding photo. <laughs> yeah, a lot of truth, huh? And what we're going to be doing today is talking about some of the myths that I think people bring into marriage. See, I, I get to do a lot of counseling on both sides of the marriage divide. Pre-marriage counseling, as couples are getting ready for that big day, and post-marriage counseling, trying to recover from the implications of that big day. And it's fascinating watching the two sets of couples that will often come into my office side by side, because when a pre-married couple comes in, they are all over each other. I mean, their eyes are sparkling. I mean, you hear soundtracks going on, like just distant in the background. They're touching each other and stroking each other. And there's moments that you just kind of feel like you need to leave the office. If, <laughs> you know what I mean? And they come in with such naivety. So much idealistic distortion of what marriage is actually going to be. Nothing can ever make me doubt my love for Nothing could ever challenge my marriage with. Nothing could ever cause me to go another way. 
And then on the heels, you have that couple who comes in who has been married five, ten, twenty years, and they won't even look at each other. You can tell that there's years of, of resentment or of bitterness, unresolved anger, unresolved hurt. And often this equation becomes very distorted the other way with thoughts like there's no hope. How could this happen to someone like me? I'm going through the motions. I know this is the right thing to do being here, but the reality is I just want out. And I want out now. And there's this entire other set of myths that seem to be brought into this marriage equation as well. You know what I found? I found that God is fundamentally a God of truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what I'd like to do with you today is just have a, a good, honest look at this thing called marriage. At some of the myths that I think we, we, we bring into it. And hopefully we just take a shotgun to some of those myths and blow them out of the water because those myths, I tell you, will poison you. And by looking at them honestly, maybe a couple things can happen here today. Maybe you can leave here with a, with a newfound hope. Maybe you can leave here today with a step towards healing. Maybe you can leave here today with something rekindled in your soul. Maybe your marriage is great, but it just kind of takes it to the next level. And maybe you're single here today. My hope is that by looking at some of these myths, it keeps you from some of the pitfalls if that day where you say, I do, should ever come. And maybe that isn't in your equation at all anymore. And maybe by looking at some of these, you can hear what God has to say to you and through you about this all-pervasive relationship anyway. So, let's jump in. What I'd like to share with you today is just a, a collection of about a dozen or so myths that I've put together, things that I've seen in talking to so many married couples and pre-married couples for this amazing, awesome, passionate, painful, gut-wrenching relationship that we call marriage. So here we go. Myth number one. Marriage will end your loneliness. I've met so many people who are so hell-bent on finding a spouse because there's a lonely place in their soul and they think that if this happened, loneliness would be no more. I gotta tell you, some of the loneliest people I've ever met are people that are married. It is so easy in marriage, even if you share the same address, to emotionally detach to become a roommate situation or a roommate with benefits kind of thing going on, isn't it? And how many times have we found in our own marriages where, where we can be there and it's like, I don't think I've had a meaningful conversation with you for like 23 months. Because life just happens, doesn't it? I want to encourage you today that marriage will not end your loneliness. The sense of solving the loneliness problem has to be found in other ways than a spouse in your life. Myth number two. Marriage makes you a complete person. No, it doesn't. Marriage is something that complements one another, not completes one another. 
And I want to encourage you that if you're looking for your spouse to make you a whole and complete person, you are doing a disservice to your spouse and to the relationship that you're in. God has called you to be whole. Whole whether there is a ring on your finger or not. And better to find that wholeness before entering into a marriage than to thrust that into a relationship and mess it up from the start. Myth number three. Marriage makes people happy. All right. Who here was still on their feet at 10 years? All right. Collectively, ready? Are you kidding me? Right? Those of you who aren't married here today or those of you who are just starting out, talk to some of the veterans who have been on the block. There is great joy in marriage, but there is also great anger and sorrow and heartache. Amen? Amen. Marriage is not about making people happy. You have to find your happiness on your own, in Christ, in your own accord. No other person in this world can make you happy. And it is an unfair burden to thrust on another human being to say that you are responsible for my happiness. There's a word for that. Do you know what it is? Victim. Number four. Marriage is for everyone. This is a dirty one that pervades the church a lot of times, I found out. The idea that if you're not married, you're not doing something right. If you're not married, there's not a place for you. If you're not married, somehow you're just kind of taking some, some kind of loophole out of God's plan. I tell you, marriage is not for everyone. In fact, the Apostle Paul even goes so far to say not being married is better by far to those of you who've been married 10 years or more. Amen? <laughs> Every guy in the room looked at his wife before he dared speak on that last question. <laughs> Marriage is not for everyone. In fact, the Bible will even call celibacy a spiritual gift, which incidentally is the spiritual gift that no teenage male ever wanted, right? <laughs> But nonetheless, marriage is not for everyone. And there is an amazing plan in this world for people who aren't married. Now, if you want to get married, God bless you. Go for it. But to think that you have to get married, that you need to get married, that you should get married, there is nothing further from the biblical truth. Jesus wasn't married. You don't have to be either. Myth number five. Romance will always be alive in a good marriage. You know what I found? Every single relationship is made up of peaks and of valleys and the everyday problems and challenges of this world, they get in the way. Do you know what the single biggest killer of romance is? Are you with me on this? Kids. <laughs> Isn't it ironic that the very thing that got us onto the kid predicament to begin with is the thing that turns around to bite us on the back end? But I have met couples who think that because they are not just swooning with passion every time they see each other, that something must be wrong in their relationship. To which I just got to say, are you kidding me? Can you imagine trying to sustain a romance level of relationship every single day? I'm just exhausted thinking about it. 
there was this, uh, this church I heard that they did a marriage series, and, uh, and, and they had a marriage challenge, and the marriage challenge was this. We want married couples for one month, every day for 30 days, to commit to having sex. Okay, now I'm not going to ask you out loud, all right? Do you have this moment where you go instantaneously, yeah, and then you go, oh. <laughs> because it's just not possible. Marriage is not meant to be this frenetic feel of dating all the time. Now, I will say this. If it is never there, that's problematic. But to expect that it always is there, oh, man, that's not what God intended. If you're not feeling that way every day, let me assure you, you are healthy and normal, and your marriage can still be good. You know, it's, it's interesting. When, when you look at a dating relationship and you see so much passion and energy and heat for each other, and then sometimes you look at something like marriage and it feels calm and still in relation. You know what I mean? You know, it's fascinating if you think about water. And if you look at two streams running side by side, two bodies of water, two rivers, you know, if you were to take a look at a mountain stream, it's filled with life and energy and it's, it's, it's foaming and it's, it's roaring and it's rushing fast, right? It looks like it's filled with excitement and, and something amazing, but you know what? Your typical mountain stream is about a foot and a half deep. You can go down to the Mississippi, though, and it doesn't look like it's doing anything, right? But do you know how many more metric tons of water per second the Mississippi is moving than a mountain stream? Do not mistake energy on the surface for depth underneath. And I think something amazing that, that, that these couples who have been married 20, 30, 40, even 50 years can sometimes have to teach us of what a deepening love looks like that goes beyond skin deep. Now, I want to encourage you to something as well. If there's never any energy there, if the romance is never alive, it's not just going to happen. Myth number five, corollary B. You've got to plan for romance. Jason Weber, our vicar here at FOF, he was just in Hawaii for about a week. And uh, all of us on staff were like really torqued that, you know, he didn't invite us to come as well. But, but Jason brought me something back. And uh, here they are. And it kind of had a flashback moment for me. And um, see, see, Tina and I, we did our, our honeymoon in Hawaii 16 years ago. And you know when you go to a hotel here in the Midwest, they have those do not disturb signs that you can put on the door? Well, the way they do it in Hawaii is you hang one of these. It was a little disturbing to me that Jason gave me one of these after his trip from Hawaii. <laughs> I'm thinking about that. But guys, I want to ask you something. Men, specifically you. When is the last time you've hung a pair of these? Are you building into your soulmate? Are you intentionally making it happen? 
You know, you get kids and, and these things just don't hang quite as frequently anymore. But I tell you, you need to build into her. You need to get away. You need to plan it. It doesn't have to be extravagant. Believe me, going up to your wife and going like this, I got a weekend planned. It's all it takes. Find a bed and breakfast. Get a hotel for the night. Get the kids to grandma's house. Grandma, take them. <laughs> Your grandchildren need it. And I mean that as the God's honest truth. It's a myth to think that it's always going to be like that. But hey, God made it. God wants it to be there sometimes. Build into the one you love. Myth number six. Infidelity only happens in bad marriages to weak people. I've had so many people uh, confess to me. Lapses, falls, betrayals. And oftentimes with a spouse right there saying things like, I don't know what happened. I mean, I, I thought we had a great marriage. We were, we were happy. To which I normally answer him this. You do. And you are. Because infidelity doesn't happen in bad marriages. Do you know why infidelity happens? Because of attraction. You can be in the greatest marriage ever. Deeply in love with your spouse. There can be passion and fire and energy. But attraction happens. Do not think because your marriage is so good that it cannot happen to you. And my encouragement to you is that when attraction strikes, not if, but when, when that person come along, comes along who, who has similar qualities to that woman or man who is your soulmate that you have fallen for, set up the barriers, run fleeing from evil, as the scriptures will say. Protect yourself. And if you've fallen, I want to let you know here today, there is still hope for you. Next myth. You won't have any major problems if you truly love one another. Are you kidding me? The presence of problems and struggles and conflict, even major ones in your marriage, it's not necessarily a sign that it is on a rocks because this is what happens. When we get married, we come in with baggage, with issues, with sins, and with weaknesses, don't we? And you know what the devil does? The devil will take every single issue that you personally have and he will exploit it in your marriage to poison that relationship. Are you volatile? Are you greedy? Are you self-centered? Do you struggle with lust? These things just don't magically go away because someone says, I do. And what the devil does is he comes along into this, this amazing relationship that God has marriage and he finds ways to just turn that knife, to stick it in, to make things happen, exploiting every single issue we have. This is why it is so important to tend your soul. People, are you tending your souls here this morning?
Are you taking that hard, honest look at the character and the qualities of who you've become? And are you just hiding from the things that you don't like? Or are you dealing with them spot on? Because I tell you, if you hide from them, they have a way of manifesting themselves in your marriage in ways that are more insipid than anything you could have ever dreamed. Next myth. Two people in a good marriage automatically grow closer with time. Are you, uh, are you familiar with the, the, the second law of thermodynamics? It's called the law of entropy. Maybe not by definition, but I sure you are in reality. And it says something like this. That if something is left to its own devices, something is left unattended, something is just kind of left to carry its own course by its own will, it will naturally degrade rather than progress. It will naturally break down rather than build into greater complexity. And think about it. You see this all the time in life, don't you? I mean, you, you clean a house. And if you leave that house sit, does it get cleaner over time or dirtier over time? You take a piece of metal, you don't deal with it. Does it tend to tarnish and rust? Or does it tend to get more and more polished every single day? And you can take a marriage as well. And if you leave it alone, it is not going to get better. It is probably going to fade into entropy. It is an inevitable law of physics. And there's simply no getting around it. Not in relationships either. Your marriage needs you. Now here's what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that it is your job to fix your spouse. Alright? Men, I want to speak to you for a second. She is not your project. It is not your job in the relationship to fix everything for her. And believe me, I know what it's like when you see the person you care for struggling and hurting and wounded to want to swoop in and save the day because all of us think that we wear S's under our shirts on our chest, don't we? But that's not what God calls you to. You're not called to fix her. And ladies, I got something to say to you as well. You are not his mother. <laughs> he is your husband, not your son. Stop treating him like it. All right? Do you want him to be the man that you dreamed? Then let him take off the little boy pants and act like a man. And if he chooses to do it his own way, it is not up to you to scold, correct, nag, whine, manipulate, or all of the other wonderful things that you have mastered doing in this relationship called marriage. <laughs> yeah, teen ain't in this one. <laughs> I want to read something to you, and this is from Romans chapter 15. It says this, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Notice it doesn't say we who are strong ought to fix the failings of those who are weak in order to please ourselves. Improve one another just as Christ improved you. It doesn't say that, does it? You who are strong, bear with the one who is weak in that area of your relationship and not for your own self-good. Accept them because you know what? God puts up with you too. And maybe our marriages would be a little bit better if we were to operate in the same way. Don't you think? All right, let's keep moving on. Conflict means a lack of love. You know who are the couples I worry about? It's the couples who never fight. If someone is not fighting ever in a relationship, you know what that tells me? Someone is afraid. Someone is checked out. Someone doesn't think it's worth it anymore. We need to have a spirit of open and honesty with the people who matter most. And if we can't do that in a healthy way, if we can't disagree and still love each other, if we can't have it out because we're passionate about something, but still treat each other with respect and love each other all the same, that's what's problematic. Some of you right now are going, man, I must have the healthiest relationship in the world then, right? <laughs> fight fair, you better believe it. But fight, it's part of God's plan. I've got a couple more that I want to share with you today. My spouse should know my needs without my saying anything. Okay, ladies, we don't even know your needs when you do say something. We need it in a written form. We need it articulated clearly. We need semaphore flags and smoke signals. All right? If we need that to get it, how are we supposed to read your mind? We can't even read our own minds, let alone yours. Is there something lacking? Is there something bothering you? Is there something there that's an issue? You got to tell her. You got to tell them. Because a, a marriage that isn't rooted in that kind of communication and honesty is, is, is doomed. Next one. Marrying a Christian guarantees a strong, successful marriage. No, it doesn't. Just because they go by the God label doesn't mean they are godly. And just because they call themselves Christian doesn't mean they want anything to do with Christ. And even if they do, you know what? They're still sinners. Ladies, take a look at your men right now. See him? He's still a sinner. Amen? Men, take a look at your, your, your wives right now. Oh my gosh, they're still sinners, right? <laughs> I'm not going to ask you and get you in trouble tonight. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've met couples that, uh, that are married to non-Christians and the relationship is often stronger than Christian couples that I've seen. Because sometimes non-Christian people exemplify the way of Christ more than the people who carry the label. Those of you who are single here in the room today, I want to encourage you. Don't think that just because he calls himself a Christian that he lives and acts and thinks that way. Next myth. 
The influence of a Christian is always greater than the influence of a non-Christian. I've met a lot of people who think, you know, if I just marry him, if I just marry her, my life will exude such joy and promise and the light and life of Christ that they, they'll be sucked into the gravitational pull and, and they'll be saved. I, I read a recent study on this. Let me share it with you. They studied couples where, where one was a Christian and the other was not. And they came back 10 years after the fact. This is what they found. Then in those relationships, 72% of the time, the Christians stopped going to church rather than the non-believers starting to go. What they've also found was that in only 17% of the times was there any evidence of conversion in a mate. Who you marry today is who they will be tomorrow. This does not mean people can't change. This does not mean people don't grow. This does not mean that complexities don't come in. But I'm here to tell you, if you can't go in at day one with who they are on that basis, don't go in. And there's two more that I want to share with you this morning. Maybe the biggest one I see it's the myth of unconditional love. You know, I want to write a Hallmark card because the date is coming up. And on the front, it would be these big hearts and this, like, you know, really, like, mushy poem and, you know, Hallmark, right? Valentine's Day. And you know what? It would open up and it would be one sentence and it would simply say this. There is no such thing as unconditional love. With God, maybe. With people? No way. Love can be broken. Love can be destroyed. Love can be poisoned. Talk to the so many people that stood at altars saying, I do, as long as we both shall live who later on said, what happened? There was a movie out a while ago. You remember it? It's called The Wedding Crashers. <laughs> One of the best scenes in it, because it was so absolutely true, is they're, they're at the ceremony in their wedding, and, and, and they're taking a bet. And the bet is on what scripture passage is going to be read. And the bet comes down to this. Is it going to be 1 Corinthians 13, or is it going to be Colossians 3.14? You remember the bet? It's so funny because except for one wedding in the 123 weddings I have done, only one did not have 1 Corinthians 13 or Colossians 3.14. Do you want to know what the safe money is? It's 1 Corinthians 13. They got it right in the movie. All right? Here's how it goes. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Do you know what I would love to see a couple do? I would love to see them stand up at the altar and instead of reading 1 Corinthians 13, look each other deeply in the eye in this amazingly romantic moment and say this. I am unpatient. I am unkind. I envy. I keep record of wrongs. I will turn to the dark side. I will shoot lightning out my fingertips. Because you know what makes marriage marriage? It's commitment. 
not love. Love does not sustain the promise. Promise sustains the love. And the romant, most romantic thing in this universe is not someone who comes filled with like emotional highs saying, oh, I love you no matter what. It's someone who comes to you and says, in your worst and in your lowest and in your ugliest, I choose you. Love is a choice and love is an act of the will. Do you want him to love you? then be a lovable person. Do you want her to be attracted to you? Then be an attractive person. This thing that we call love is far from unconditional. And it needs your personal investment. To expect your spouse to love you unconditionally is to elevate them to the level of divine. And I'm here to tell you today, he is not God. She is not God. Don't expect him to be that way. Smash down your idols. And know that you've married a human being. The last one I want to share with you today is this. For me, it's the most important. And, and maybe the most important for you today. It's not too late. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for your marriage. It's not too late to heal. It's not too late to even recover. If marriage and divorce has become a part of your history. It's not too late to heal on the inside, too. The reality is there is no such thing as helpless or hopeless in God's vocabulary. And the reality is that God and marriage is not about perfection. It's about forgiveness. I, I, I want to show you a passage today. And, and I want you to read it along with me. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the one that lost the, the bet in the wedding crashers. And we're just going to read the first of the two verses they often quote at weddings. Would you read this with me? Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I think I've personally found that the most important life lesson to learn in marriage is this. Forgiveness. Because you know what? I've got news for you. He's not perfect. And she's not either. You're going to hurt each other. Badly. The people that we make ourselves most vulnerable with have the, the capacity to hurt us the deepest, don't they? Because they know where the chinks are in our armor. And we do a pretty good job as, as married folk, don't we? Of sometimes knowing where to stick that stiletto. Learning how to forgive. It means everything. 
And I know there's some of you here who are thinking, it's gotten so bad. It's gotten so bad that nothing is going to save this shy of a miracle. I got good news for you today. God is in the miracle business. And his greatest miracle starts with a cross. His greatest miracle starts with a cross from where forgiveness flows. And I'm here to tell you today, you are forgiven. For the hurt you've brought into your relationship, you are forgiven. For the damage and the relationship havoc that you've left in your past, you are forgiven. For the failure of the person that you are today, and the way that you see it, tainting it before your eyes, you are forgiven. God is in the business of healing and of grace. And our marriages need to be too. So many times I see people starting their marriages from a source of, we're going to fix it, we're going to make it right. But maybe what you need most of all is just plunging in the blood of a cross, basking in it together, and saying, Lord, wash over me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive us. Because it's in that that I found marriage is born. I want to pray with you today. Band's going to come forward. We're going to have a chance to commune. But before we do, I want to pray for those of you who are married today. That you get to experience marriage is the way that God intended it. And for all the ways that it's just gotten messed up, that maybe as husband and wife, or even if you're here alone, we can embrace forgiveness today. I want to pray for those of you who are divorced and there's hurt in your past. That if there's guilt or regret, we can plunge that in the cross today. And you can know that God is looking at you going, I love you. You're forgiven. I've got something amazing in store for you today. And for those of you who aren't married yet, I honestly want to pray the same. So I want to invite you to rise. Wherever you happen to be, just come to God in these next couple of moments. Let's pray. God in heaven, you, you, you created this thing called marriage and... Uh, Thank you. God, when it's good, it is the most amazing, incredible blessing you have given us. But God, when it's bad, it is so hard and so fraught with pain and suffering. God, we know this. It is not easy. And it takes all of us. And we're sinful human beings. We fail. We mess it up. God, forgive us here today. Forgive us for every, every harsh word spoken, for every nasty comment, for every neglect, for every fight that's turned mean, for every, every time we've relegated our spouse to second place. Thank you. Thank you that you come down to us 
say, I love you. I forgive you. But come, follow me. God, may we follow you in your plans and in our marriages. And for those who are broken here today, that you would bring wholeness. For those who are so into each other today, that you would bring passion and depth. For those who have grown apathetic, that you would rekindle. God, for those who aren't married, that you would give wisdom. If the time should come when they meet that person. And that regardless, God, you give them so much purpose and hope and satisfaction. Knowing, God, that that singleness is also a blessing from you. Wherever we come, whoever we are. Save us, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his